0: Hey guys, this is Lee Cummings and I was with Upper Room this weekend, had the privilege of sharing a message called New Wine, Fresh Oil and Old Fire about re-fanning into flame the embers of revival in our current day and asking God to do it again. Really believe it's going to be helpful. It's going to help us draw near to the Lord. Hope it blesses you.
1: Thank you. Thank you, guys. Um, well, you're, you're in for a treat tonight. Um, before I tell you about that, I want to honor uh, two, two people. Uh, Rachel and Caleb Culver were leading worship. Uh, they're from Kalamazoo Radiant Church. Uh, and I have, there's, it's kind of strange when uh, you see someone that's had such a, Profound impact upon your walk with Jesus, Uh, Caleb. In the early days of the Upper Room, we 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 didn't have many musicians or singers. We had an iPod and a you know YouTube. And he led at the International House of Prayer for years. Uh, Him and Corey Asbury had a set together. And um, there's a, a he knows this, but I just wanted to state it publicly because of your impact upon our community. But there's a there's a video that has probably 200, 250,000 views, and I think 99% of them are mine. <laughs> uh, because that, that set, that two-hour set, has gotten me through so many seasons. Like, it is, it is my go-to. When this room is empty and, and there's no musicians up here, it is on save on that computer. I go to it, I hit it, and it just kicks off. And I just wanna thank you, man. I wanna thank you for what you two have cultivated for what you've gone after, we are the fruit of your leadership. We are the fruit of you as a 20-something, not knowing you know, what you guys were doing and y'all started recording it and you, you pioneered for communities like this. And I know you guys are pioneering in Kalamazoo and you're gonna meet his pastor, Pastor Lee, but these guys are family, they are so kindred. We're going after the same thing and I just wanted to say thank you guys. Thanks for tonight, thanks for coming, thanks for leaving your family. So, these are special, special people. Special, special people, so I'm just indebted. And then, speaking of history, uh, uh, Sean's here. I just i am so grateful, man, for what you're heralding and going after. Sean was in town for, uh, uh, he had a family uh, funeral, and so he spent the night with us last night, and was buzzing through, but, you know, cut my teeth learning to pray, running with Sean. Uh, planting burns and so just to see how God's using Sean in this hour and the voice that he is, just really grateful you're here tonight, bro. Um and then the next person that I want to introduce is is she's gonna to speak to you. I've had this this date on my my calendar uh all year since he said yes to coming. Uh, that's actually his last name, Lee Cummings. Yes. There we go. Um anyways he uh I, I felt like the Lord was gonna use this weekend um, I uh, felt like there was an impartation, and um, I, I felt like he was going to bring a clarion call for us. And in the midst of, you know, we've been, we've been in some pretty deep stuff. If you've been here for the last couple of weeks, walking through the Maranatha series and deep in covenants, deep in end time stuff, and you guys have been just such troopers and going through that, I mean, we got the board up, we're drawing diagrams and graphs, you can't read my handwriting, but you guys are in, and you're taking notes, and we're going deep in scripture, and I feel like this message is what everything is unto, um, and it's a coming move of God. Uh, it, it just, it pierced hearts this morning. I have received text after text after text today as to how uh, moved and convicted people were, and just re um, again, to the call uh, that we have as a house, and to know that we're not uh, we're not alone in this pursuit as a family. That there's sister churches that are going after the same thing, and uh, Radiant Church up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, is going after this with us. And so, uh, this is a father. He's a father to this house. He's a voice. You're going to be very, very blessed tonight. And so, would you stand once again and welcome Lee Cummings, my man? Thank you, bro. Thank you. Thank you.
0: <clears throat> Such an honor to be here with all of you. We love we love this house. This is our first time meeting, although I've slipped in a couple months ago when you guys were doing baptisms on a Sunday night. I was at another church here in town and I called Michael. I said, "Can I come over?" and I kind of slipped in and sat over there and I almost got rebaptized <laughs> because of all the water that was splashing out. It was it was a beautiful thing and uh, it's great to be here. we We absolutely love uh, not only your pastor and and several of your worship team have come up to Kalamazoo, Michigan. Just out of curiosity. Anybody ever been to Kalamazoo, Michigan? Okay, look at that. Look at that. It's amazing. Western Michigan University is uh, in our hometown, and um, we love this place. We love upper room upper room has blessed us, and uh, now it's a a great privilege to be here with you. My wife was supposed to be here with me, uh, Jane, but she got got a cold a couple days ago, and so she decided to stay home because she didn't want to have to take a COVID test at the airport. She's like, I'm blowing my nose, and I got a runny nose. I look awful. Can I just stay home? And so I think she's watching on live stream. So everybody say, "Hi, hi, Jane. Okay, great. So she She's, uh, she's home. We've been married, this July will be 30 years, and uh, we have uh, three grown children. Three grown children, one three-year-old grandson, and identical twin granddaughters on the way. So come on, somebody. Life is good. The blessing of the Lord. It's like double-barrel grandchildren. It's amazing. And uh, 25 years ago, my wife and I moved from Grand Rapids, Michigan, to Kalamazoo on a word from the Lord to plant a praying and a worshiping church. And uh, we started not just in Kalamazoo, about 300,000 people. The Lord called us to the most remote part of Kalamazoo, which is 1,400 people, one flash, flashing red light and a post office. And that's where we started in a small high school. The high school's mascot was the Blue Devils. The room that we could rent was called the Devil's Den. And that's where we started church, with some blue wobbly chairs, an overhead projector, a worship leader who was on pain meds and favored bluegrass. And uh, I was, (laughs) it's true, I was a 25-year-old preacher who didn't know anything about anything. But we had a word from God to plant a praying and a worshiping church. So we started a prayer meeting. 17 people came out to it, and now 25 years later, God's just been so good to us. And uh, Rachel and Caleb... Uh, Culver are a part, they've been on our pastoral team for the last five years, just raising up Levites and worship and uh, praying morning, noon, and night from the heart of our city as well. And we just bear such witness with what God is doing here in this hour. And uh, it's great to be here. I want to share a message with you this evening that God gave me in the midst of the pandemic. And uh, it was like everybody it was one of those periods of time that you just kind of feel it's surreal and you're asking the question god what are you doing what are you saying in the midst of one of the most i hate to use this word but it's just it's appropriate unprecedented hours in human history yeah. and you know i was at home we're doing everything by zoom and then we reopened shortly thereafter but Uh, In in the midst of that time period, the Lord gave me this message and he said, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to have you deliver this message at very specific places around the country. And this is one of those places when I knew I was coming, felt like the Lord said, this is a message I want you to bring to upper room. So I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter three, Habakkuk or Habakkuk, however you pronounce it, chapter three. I'm gonna read it from two translations. One is the ESV, and then I'm really wanna zero in on the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, because I like how it says it the best. But in the ESV, it says, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet. According to Shigianoth, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In your wrath, remember mercy. The CSV says it like this, Lord, I've heard of the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your works in these years. Make it known in these years. And in your wrath, remember mercy. New wine, fresh oil, and old fire. Habakkuk was living in a time in Israel's history not unlike our time. He was living in what I believe we could describe as between the times. He was a contemporary with Ezekiel. He was a contemporary with Daniel, with Jeremiah. They had the best golden years of Israel had passed some decades before. They had experienced revival under Josiah, They had experienced all of the the stories, the miracles under Moses and then under the prophets and under David. And now they're in a time of spiritual decline. They're in a time where they're shortly, if not already, going into exile in Babylon. And God has raised up these prophets that in the midst of this spiritual decline, are crying out to the people what God is saying, return to the Lord with your whole heart. And they're they're remembering back to the stories that they have heard about God moving in the lives of their parents, their grandparents and generations before them. I mean, imagine what it must have been like to be a young Judean prophet who's grown up in Sunday school his whole life hearing the stories about God parting the Red Sea and about the miracles and about the bread in the wilderness and defeating the the giants under David and, you know, just miracle after miracle after miracle, all the stories. If you were like me, I grew up, I'm 50 years old, and I grew up in Sunday school. It was flannel graphs, and so... They had these flannel boards where they had like little cutout characters and the Sunday school teachers would animate the stories of the Bible. So even to this day, when I read the Bible, I see flannel graphs. (laughs) Habakkuk would have remembered all those stories. And as he is seeing what is happening in his culture, as he's watched the captives being taken away into captivity, he's seen the glory of God and the temple of God go into disarray. He cries out, God, he says, Lord, I've heard of what you have done in generations past. I've heard the stories, but revive them in our day. God, I don't want to just know secondhand stories about what you've done in a previous generation. He cries out, he's saying, God, do it again in our day. If there's ever been a time, oh Lord, when we need it, it's right now. And I think that we can all kind of align our hearts with this prayer because I feel like in many, many ways, that's where the American church is at right now. We're like, Lord, I've heard of all of your stories. I've heard the stories of how you moved in previous generations and what we have watched over the last 24 months, what we've watched in our culture, what we're watching right now around the world. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that we are living in times that are critical, and it's not just in the natural. We can watch the news and the news is gonna highlight the things that are going on in the natural, but that's just the surface of the tectonic plates. If you have eyes of faith, what you recognize is things are shifting under the surface. And everybody's asking the question, God, what are you doing and what is this unto? Well, you know, ultimately it's unto the return of the Lord and his kingdom. We don't know that, we don't know that time frame, but we know that Jesus said things are gonna shift at the end of the age. But what we do need to be as the church in this hour is like the sons of Issachar who knew and understood the times in which they were living and also knew how to respond. See, I grew up, my, my mom and my dad were 20 and 21 years old when I was born. My dad left when I was nine months old, left my mother crying in the inner city of Detroit, and my grandparents took us in. My paternal grandparents took me in, and my grandparents were my spiritual heroes. They were First generation Pentecostal Christians. And when I say Pentecostal, I mean Pentecostal. Like when you went to church, it was like three-hour church. You didn't, uh, you know, you can go to some places and it's like before you even blink, service is over. I mean, that was not the case growing up. And my grandfather was a worship leader. My grandmother played the piano. And some of the earliest memories I have of being in church is my grandmother's beehive haircut twitching. In the shadow on the overhead projector screen she played the piano and whenever the holy ghost and it wasn't the holy spirit whenever the holy ghost came into the room my grandmother's beehive haircut would begin to twitch and i'd see that up on the wall and that's when i knew god was in the room it's <laughs> four and five year old kid and my grandparents my grandfather was an evangelist in the southern gospel quartet but he worked in general motors for 30 years And every morning, he would get up at 5 a.m. before he had to go in for a shift. He would sit in his lounger, and he would read his Bible. And I, being the grandson, I would run out into the living room, sit on my grandfather's lap, and he would read to me from his, he had a 50, it had to be 50 pounds. It was a Dixon Analytical King James Study Bible. I called it a 50-pound heathen choker. I mean, it was thicker than the Detroit phone book. And he would open that up, and he would read the Bible to me. And growing up in church under a first generation grandparents who had been part of a outpouring of the Holy Spirit in their younger years. When they were 18 and 19 years old, they were Bible college students at a church in Detroit in 1947-1948 that had an eruption of a revival that took place called the latter rain outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You can go back in history books and you can read about it. One of the epicenters of it was Bethesda Missionary Temple in Detroit, Michigan. And My grandparents were Bible college students when that took place. So what that meant was that for about two to three years, they saw God move in unprecedented ways. I grew up as a kid hearing stories about revival, hearing stories about what it's like when God doesn't just show up, but when God shows up and takes over. And they would tell stories about Sunday night services like this in the missionary temple that sat 3,000 people and worshiping. And then they would say, the worship leader, Jim Beale, would wave his hand over the crowd and tell everybody to hush, and for the next 45 minutes, they would listen to the angelic choirs in the rafters sing over them, with nobody moving their mouth. He would tell stories of people coming in in wheelchairs and walking out and leaving their wheelchairs at the front of the church. He tells stories about how for three years, every single day, they had services. And then when they couldn't fit them in the church any longer, they rented the Detroit fairgrounds in order to have services. And tens of thousands of people ran to the altar and gave their heart to Christ. Billy Graham came in and several other evangelists came into the area. And there was a massive move of God. And I'll tell you what it did to me as a young child who was living in the shadow of my grandparents. It ruined me for normal Christianity. It wrecked me. And so, you know, 25 years later, I'm pastoring a church, leading a church and several other churches that are a part of us. And in the middle of everything that was going on over the last couple of years, I'm like, Lord, what are you saying to the church? And in a very profound way, the Lord said there's, There's a move of God that is coming, a revival that is coming, not a revival that's going to be just localized here or there, a little spot here or there, that God has it in his heart to a brand new wave of conviction, a brand new wave of salvation, a brand new wave that's going to sweep across North America. But God is actually preparing the church right now for that time period, that's where we are in. We are living between the times. We're in a time of preparation and consecration as the church. Because here's what I know. Before God does anything in the nations, he starts it in the church. Oh, you see, the church is not peripheral to the world. Sometimes we think we're the little church and, you know, we've got our music and we've got our Christian subculture. We've got our Christian t-shirts. We've got our Christian music. We've got our Christian breath mints, They're called testaments. We've got Christian you know, schools and Christian television, and we kind of view ourselves as peripheral over here. And then there's the real world. But do you know, according to Ephesians chapter one, the church is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. Everything that God does, he starts in the church. And what the Lord highlighted to me was there are three things that are needed in the church. These are non-negotiables for the church to be prepared for a coming outpouring of the Holy Spirit. New wine, fresh oil, and old fire. New wine, fresh oil, and old fire. If the church will respond in the hour in which we are in right now, and we hunger and we thirst for these things, I believe we will be a prepared wineskin for what he wants to do in a generation. Listen, if revival does not come to America, it's not because God's not good, it's because we weren't ready. And so we need to pay attention to these three things. New wine, fresh oil, and old fire. Let me spend a few minutes on each of these and then I wanna take us someplace here at the end. New wine, what do I mean by new wine? New new wine, wine is always indicative of the Holy Spirit and a new day requires a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit. A new day requires a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We desperately need the Holy Spirit far more than we think we do. In Acts chapter 2, when the church was gathered together waiting for the promise of the Father, Jesus had given them a great commission, go into all the world, preach the gospel, go in power, go in authority, cast out demons, everything. But before he left in Acts chapter 1, he told them not to depart Jerusalem until they receive the promise of the Father, the power of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when it had fully come, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and the same ragtag band of fugitive fishermen, corrupt tax agents, and a few other followers gathered together were inundated and saturated with the power of heaven. And 50 days earlier, when they were denying that they even knew him and were running for their life, 50 days later, that same group of people in response to the noise that came out of the room where they were praying and the crowds gathering, Peter stands up and he tells them, This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. You see, the crowds came and they said, look at all these drunks. They're drunk on new wine. And Peter stands up and he said, this is not wine that you are seeing. They're under the influence, but they're not under the influence of wine. They're under the influence of a promise where God said, I'm gonna pour out my spirit on all flesh. And Peter stands up and he does that. And 3,000 people are rushed into the kingdom of God in one day. What was the difference? Think about this for a second. What did they have that we don't have? Well, I can tell you what they didn't have. They didn't have cars, they didn't have trains, they didn't have planes, they didn't have seminary degrees, they didn't have Facebook, thank God, they didn't have Instagram, they didn't have TikTok, they didn't have Google, they didn't have Zoom. They didn't have buildings. They didn't even have a completed in print New Testament, but they had something that was otherworldly. They had the power of heaven that had so, like a tsunami had been poured out on them And it filled them with boldness and courage and intimacy with the heart of God that it was like an atomic explosion took place in Acts chapter 2 with its ripple effect working its way all throughout the book of Acts and on into the letters of the epistles in a culture that hated them, wanted to kill them, wanted to crush them. And you know, here we are 2,000 years later, the devil has done everything to extinguish the gospel, burn it destroy it, try to kill it, try to cancel it in every single culture. And instead of it shrinking, what has it done? It's just exploded. It's just exploded all over the planet. And the difference was the X factor for the church. It wasn't their sophistication. It wasn't their methodology. It wasn't their buildings. It wasn't their programs. It was they had the Holy Spirit. the American church has done a really good job at creating methodology and systems, and structures, and building. We've got great buildings. I remember hearing one time a pastor from Nigeria came over to the United States. He leads one of the largest churches in the world. He came over at the invitation of a conference, and when he was over here, he had been taken on tour to see some of the largest megachurches in America, and at the end of that little tour, they asked him in an interview, what stood out to you as the most significant part of What you've seen in the American church while you were here. And his answer startled the editor of this Christian magazine. His answer was this. What shocks me the most is how much you can do without the Holy Spirit. He says, in Africa, we don't have what you have, but we have the power. Here, you, you can do church without the power of the Holy Spirit. What we need is a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit we need it we not just in our doctrinal statements not just on church services we need every person becoming a vessel of the new wine carrying the power of the holy spirit you know it's it's one thing to drive your car on you know with a quarter tankerless how many of you you know the way you drive your car is you don't always keep it full my wife likes it at half. If, if the tank gets below half, then she starts getting stressed out. She's like, honey, can you get me gas? And I'm like, sure. I go to the gas. I'm like, you still got a half tank left. What's, what's the urgency? It's 11 o'clock at night. I went to go get you gas so you didn't have to pump it. And she's like, you know, I don't like it below half. Anybody like that in this room? You don't like it getting below half? How many of you are like me where you like to see how low? <laughs> Anybody like that? That's how I am. It's, it's a contest, and it drives my wife crazy. See, because I started driving, I had a 1978 Pontiac Catalina. It had like a little red dial on the thing. There was no talking to you. There was nothing digital. You just kind of had to eyeball it, and I remember you would get that to, over to the dial, and then once that gas gauge died, I had to like do the math, write down what the mileage was when I got the gas, knew how many miles I could get, and I knew when I had to get gas again. Now we're more sophisticated. Now we have computers that tell us, you have 17 miles left. Can I just tell you something? It doesn't start getting fun until five miles. Because I know somewhere there's a German engineer who devised this, who said to themselves, these dumb Americans, are going to drive themselves to an empty tank, so we're going to build in an extra, I don't know, let's say 20 miles that we don't tell them about so that they drive. And so my goal in life is to find out what that number is. So I drive like zero, we're just at zero, and it's like, I know, we're still going. The farthest I've gotten is 17 miles. I've gotten 17 miles, and then Jane was having a just... Mental meltdown going through Missouri. She's like, get gas. And because her faith was so weak, I decided to pull over and get some gas. It's fun to do with your car, but can I tell you, that's not how you want to walk in relationship with the Holy Spirit. This isn't to see how low we can get it, how little bit of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, Paul says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled continually Filled with the Holy Spirit. How many times do we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Every single day, we need a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. Because what it means to be filled is come under the influence. And what I know is that especially in the hour in which we are living in, every Christian, every person on the face of the earth is coming under the influence of some spirit. We're either going to come under the influence of the spirit of the world, and before we know it, things that are happening in the world are going to begin to make sense. We're going to come into agreement with demonic spirits and doctrines of devils. Our heart's going to be cold to the presence of God. The Bible's not going to say what it used to say anymore. We're going to get agitated every time we're in church, and Pastor Michael ministers something, and it really irritates because it touches on our sin, and we don't even know it, but our vision and our view has come under the influence, and we become inebriated by the spirit of the age. And in this hour we can't run on quarter tank. We can't just have a little touch of the Holy Spirit. We can't have the JV Holy Spirit. We can't have the you know the the light beer version of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Ghost. We need new wine. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. One of the things that the Lord Shared with me during the pandemic was this cultural Christianity is dead. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Cultural Christianity is dead. Cultural Christianity is built upon comfort, it's built upon consumerism, it's built upon needs just being met. It's, it's built upon the foundation that I grew up in America and therefore I'm a Christian. Cultural Christianity. Is dead and Christianity is as usual has to die in our lives. This is no longer a situation where we can just go through the motions. We can't come to church like it's a cruise ship. We got to come to church like it's a battleship. We can't show up with our Tommy Bahama and our flip flops. I mean, if you do, it's fine, but you better come with a wartime mentality we need to come that we need the power of the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite writers, his name was E.M. Bounds, and he wrote this a hundred years ago. And he said, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more in novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use. Men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men. Men, and I would say women of prayer. This is what God's looking for in this hour. We've got to have new wine. And then the second second thing that the Holy Spirit highlighted was we need fresh oil. Everybody say fresh fresh oil. So oil all throughout the pages of scripture is talking about the anointing. Anointing oil that was produced in the Old Testament to anoint all the articles in the house of God and to anoint prophets, priests, and kings was typified through the oil. And when we look at what God is doing in the church in this hour, he wants to produce and release out of our lives fresh oil, but fresh oil only comes when there is a fresh pressing. Because anointing oil is the fruit of the olive, and an olive has to be ripe in season and come under a pressure of pressing in order to release the anointing oil. Yeah. I've been to Israel a couple different times. The last time we were there, we were up in uh, the Galilee, and we were, I think we were near Capernaum. And the guide who was with us, he's a dear friend, but he pointed out, he said, this right here in this courtyard, that is an ancient olive press. Garden of Gethsemane has several of them, these ancient olive trees in this grove. And in the middle of it, there are these round, almost the size of a kid's pool, carved out of limestone, where they would take the olives when they were ripe, and they would put them into the press, and they would run these stones over them that would then press the, olive in such a way that it did not destroy it or crush it or embitter the fruit, but enough weight that it released the oil and then it would drain and it would be captured and then it would be used in the house of God. It'd be used to anoint things. There has to be a time and there has to be a season and there has to be a ripeness for the fruit to be pressed in order to release the new anointing oil. Now, I believe one of the things that God is doing in the church and has been doing in the church is a fresh pressing in order to produce a fresh anointing. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8, Paul writes, He says, We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down. But not destroyed. This is Paul the apostle talking about what he's going through. And if anybody has ever wanted to be an apostle, before you sign up for that, read his job description: snake bitten, shipwreck, left for dead in open waters for a day and a half. He's been chased by wild animals, bandits. He's been lied about. He's been imprisoned. He's been you know cat a nine tail thirty nine times, four different times. And he says, and on top of that, the anxiety of caring for the church. Paul was an apostle and when he says, I've been pressed but not crushed, there's something there for us to learn. There's something there for us to draw on because I think everybody over the last couple of years and maybe for even longer have experienced pressure as things begin to change. And the pressing Unfortunately, when we begin to feel the weight of culture, we begin to feel the weight of persecution. We begin to feel the the weight of being those that follow Christ in the middle of a culture that no longer is walking parallel with us any longer. When we begin to experience that pressure, oftentimes we can think, is this going to crush me? And what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church in this hour is, this pressing, this new pressure that we're feeling is not to destroy you, but it's actually to reveal you. See, the challenge that you've been going through, the pressure that we've been experiencing, whether it's on a corporate level in the church or individually, has not been there to destroy you, but to refine you so that God ultimately can reveal you. And the reason why the pressure right now is feeling so heavy to so many people, almost everybody is walking around going, what is going on? I don't even know what's happening. I just feel like things have shifted. I feel like there's more pressure. Here's the reality is for far too long in the American church, we have lived in a zero gravity environment a zero gravity environment let's be honest like persecution for us has been like i got canceled on social media it's like i'm a martyr for jesus you know somebody doesn't like us or makes a mean comment on facebook or you know on whatever social media platform immediately we feel like oh well that hurts But can I just tell you that believers around the world, they may not have a lot of things that we have here, but what they have is they have built a strength under pressure that enables them to withstand persecution. More people are martyred for Jesus around the world right now in any one given year than in any other time period in human history. And yet here we are, and as Americans, we have lived Virtually in kind of a zero gravity environment. What do you mean by zero? I mean, zero gravity. We don't recognize that gravity or pressure is actually what strengthens us on a daily basis. See, there's a gravity that pushes you towards the, the core of the earth. And God has designed us with muscles so that every single day that you stand up and you walk and you take steps, your muscles are moving against the resistance of gravity and regenerating themselves and developing a strength. But if you, were, you know, if you take astronauts and you put them in a rocket and you send them up to the International Space Station, leave them there for nine months, floating around, doing all their experiments. Their mind is sharp, but when they come back to the earth after having been in a zero gravity environment for nine months, their muscles have atrophied. And they have to go into physical therapy to redevelop the muscles because they have not had any gravitational pressure that has strengthened them on a daily basis. You don't even know it, but you're getting stronger every day. Those of you who feel guilty that you don't have a workout routine, you can go home tonight feeling really good about yourselves. Cause it's like, yeah, you know, I just, I've been resisting gravity all day long. Just I'm pushing the weights. Cause that's true. But the American church has lived in a spiritual zero gravity environment and what it has produced is spiritual atrophy in our heart, in our soul, and it makes and it requires us to go where we are right now, I believe, in a period of time in which God has the church in physical therapy. He's beginning to press us, not to destroy us, but because he sees in the future the new anointing, the new unction, the new power that is gonna be released out of the lives and out of the heart of the church that cannot happen until there is pressure that is released because the anointing in an olive is not released till there's pressure. The anointing that is in your life is not gonna be released until there's pressure to release it. Even Jesus, Jesus, before he goes to the cross, which... You know, here we are, we're celebrating communion and we're singing about the cross and the the power of the blood. And You don't realize that before Jesus went to the cross, he went to Gethsemane. The last thing that Jesus did was he went to Gethsemane. And when he was in Gethsemane, he prayed and he said, Lord, if there's any other way to accomplish your will, let, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And he cried and he wept and great drops of blood poured out of his sweat glands as he struggled with the burden of this pressing. You see, because the name Gethsemane means the place of pressing. He himself was under a pressing, but it was his ability in that pressing to surrender and fully yield to the will of God and trust that God knew, the Father knew the purposes and the plans that he had on the third day to raise him from the dead. That that was what enabled the anointing to save and to deliver you and me was released out of Jesus's life, not just on the cross, but first in the garden of Gethsemane. And I wanna ask you, who is on the other side of your pressing? Because I believe God wants to raise up deliverers in the house of God not just those that speak and not those who minister and not those that everybody sees. I think God wants to take a nameless, faceless body of Christ that has been under just enough pressure. They know who they are in Jesus. They know who their God is. They've experienced some resistance. Their soul is strong. They're filled with the Holy Spirit and they go into every sphere of society. They go into the homes, they go into the schools, they go into politics, they go into the arts, they go into film, they go into the church and everywhere that they go they've been under the pressure but there's a anointing that has been released out of their lives that helps set other people free I believe that's you I believe that's me you know it's Isaiah chapter 10 says it's the anointing that breaks the yoke look at the burden think about the yokes that people in our generation are facing the the confusion the anxiety, the depression. I live in Pfizer land. Kalamazoo is the home of Pfizer in North America. More anti-anxiety and more antidepressant medication is produced today than in any other decade combined. There is a generation that has the world at their fingertips. They have knowledge in their hands. They can access anything, but yet they are filled with anxiety and despair and discouragement. What kind of anointing is it gonna to take to set somebody like that free? What kind of anointing is it gonna to take to walk somebody out of the deepest, darkest place of anti-Christ mentality? What kind of anointing is it gonna to take to help deliver people in this generation that the devil believes he's got locked I've got them unlocked. I've so messed them up. I've so confused them. I've so lied to them. I've taken them so far down the road, but how many know that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. The message of the cross, it may be foolishness to the world, but it is salvation to those of us who are being saved. There's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the lamb. There is still power in the message of the gospel. The third thing that, I believe that God spoke to me that the church has got to attain is old fire. And, and I'm going to be honest, when I heard the Lord speak old fire to me, I actually argued back with the Lord. I don't know if anybody in here has ever argued with God where it's like, no, God, you mean new fire. Because I've, I've sang that song, you know, we need new fire. And the Lord's like, no, I, I said old fire. And I had to really dig deep, Lord, why old fire? And here's what the Lord spoke to me. Without old fire, there can be no new fire. Without old fire, there can be no new fire. Let me explain that to you. You and I live in a relatively unique time period in world history. It's only in the last hundred years or so that we have flight and that we have fire on demand. You know, you want to make something, you just go to the stove and click, 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 click. You want to grill some hamburgers, you go out on your back deck, you turn the propane tank on, igniter. You've got those nice long little lighters to light your Yankee candles, you know, click those and get the mood just right. We have fire on demand, matches, lighters, igniters. So we're used to fire. We just assume that that fire is always available to us. But you don't realize is that in ancient times that, that was not the case. Up until relatively recently, fire meant life. If you had it, you had life. If you didn't, it meant death. Because without fire, you couldn't cook. Without fire, you couldn't ward off predators. Without fire, you couldn't stay warm. Without fire, you didn't gather together as a community. Fire was everything. And we've become domesticated, and we, we miss all these realities. The, the truth is, is that in ancient times, fire was the difference between life and not. And the most important person, one of the most important people in nomadic communities, like, North, like uh, Native Americans or in, in any country where they were nomadic, where they moved from place to place to place was the fire keeper. Because once you got fire, you had to keep fire. See, once you got fire, you did not let fire go out. You kept fire. And the firekeeper was the person that managed the fire. And when it became time to move from this place to this place, it was the firekeeper's responsibility to take the embers, the white hot coals, and to put them into flax and wool and twigs and maybe a clay container and allow them to smolder as they traveled to the next location. And then when you would get to the next location, they would prepare the wood and get everything ready. But then you would take your container of smoldering embers and you would place them into the the kindling and you would fan it into flame. So you didn't have to start with Flint. You didn't have to start with, you know, doing one of those. My wife and I are addicted to this show called Naked and Afraid. I don't know if anybody's seen this show. But the worst part of it, besides being naked, (laughs) is having to start fire. You know, they've got like the ropes and I'm an expert survivalist. And you'll be shocked at how many people who think they know how to make fire can't make fire. And so in ancient cultures, you had a fire keeper. He transported the fire. And once the fire was burning, then you could cook. Then you gathered. Then you were warm. If he messed up the fire and the flames went out or the embers died or something happened when you crossed a river, then you had to start all the way over. It reminds me of 2 Timothy where Paul commands Timothy, he says, fan into flame the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. He says, fan it into flame. It's an ember, it's in you. Fan it into flame. What do I mean by old fire? Why do we need old fire? Well, because without old fire, there cannot be new fire. And without an understanding of how God has moved in the past, we will not be ready for God to move in our future. You see, there's a generation that right now has no clue of how God has moved in our past. And I believe right now, if we had eyes to see in the spirit right now across North America, we would see that there are still campsites from revivals and moves of God that date back to our founding and in other nations as well, where those campfires are still white hot coals smoldering below the surface. But we've walked by them, we've passed them because we never knew about them or we don't know what to do with them. And we're crying out, God, God, give us new fire. And he says, the key to new fire is going back and revisiting old fires. Go back. Go back and look at the First Great Awakening when George Whitfield came to America up and down the eastern seaboard and preached and men like Benjamin Franklin who didn't even barely believe in God came out and listened to him preach and crowds of 20 and 30,000 people in Boston listened to him preach. Go back. Go back to when men like John Wesley stood in the countrysides of Britain when the established church would not allow him to preach and to crowds of 30 and 40,000 people he would preach. No worship, no overhead projectors, no lights, just him and a cow pasture and people would shake under the presence of God and the conviction of God and get saved and it ignited a flame of revival in Europe. Go back to a man named Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf who welcomed the Moravians in and started a hundred year prayer meeting that then thrust the modern mission movement out into the nations of the earth where men and women literally sold themselves into slavery to bring the gospel to the West Indies. And on their way of being shipped to the West Indies, they looked back at their friends and they said, the lamb is worthy to receive the rewards of his suffering. Go back to Charles Finney, a lawyer in upstate New York, who had an encounter with the living God and became a a, a firebrand for the second great awakening. He would send Nash, his intercessor, into a city who would pray for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then he would show up in Rochester, New York, just his train coming into town. The conviction that moved on the city shut factories and bars down. He would, give all, he would preach in church to packed out crowds and refuse to give altar calls and say, if you want to get saved, come back tomorrow night. And they would come back and he said, not yet, come back tomorrow night. And by the time he gave the okay for the altar call, people didn't walk, they ran to the front. It happened in our country. There was a time in our nation where 25% of the colonial population was saved in a three year period of time. Go back to Jeremiah Lamphere, who was a businessman turned pastor in Manhattan, who saw the spiritual decline in the church and started a noontime prayer meeting that swept across North America so that literally there were millions of people who at noon all across this country would gather and they would pray for God to move in our nation. In our own city of Kalamazoo, I mean Kalamazoo, we're reading in a revival book. And one of the things that we did over the pandemic is We bought a building in the heart of our city and started a prayer room. And so we've got prayer meetings morning, noon, and night from the heart of our city. And we're just like, God, why the heart of the city? Then we read this book and it says that during the noontime businessman's revival that took place under Jeremiah Lamphere, that there was a brief revival that took place in Kalamazoo where five denominations prayed every single day together. Hundreds of people came, and in a six-week period of time, 500 people out of 10,000 people in our city population at that time got born again and saved, and where they got together and prayed was right where we put our prayer room. Go back and think about a man named William J. Seymour, who was a descendant of slaves, blind in one eye, black preacher, who had such a hunger for the presence of God. He had heard about a revival breaking out in Topeka, Kansas, at a man named Charles Parham's Bible School. And Charles Parham was preaching in Houston, William J. Seymour said, I'm so hungry, I'm so desperate, I must, I must get this power of the Holy Spirit. He went there, and they refused to let him in because he was black. It was still segregated America. He could have gotten offended, he could have said, this is it, and he could have went home, but he was so hungry, he sat outside the door and he listened. And listening outside the door through the window, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and power. He accepted a position in Los Angeles to be a pastor. When he showed up, they found out that he believed in tongues and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And they said, we don't want you to be our pastor. Somebody invited them into their living room to do a Bible study on Bonnie Bray Street. That Bible study turned prayer meeting turned into a revival. They went down the street to a local homeless shelter called the Azusa Street Mission. And God poured his spirit out on that. And people with brown skin, white skin, black skin, politicians, homeless people, poor, young, Spanish, English, began to worship together at the turn of the century. Literally, the Los Angeles Times posted on their front page, Mission on Fire. Because so many people saw a physical manifestation of fire burning over the building. People came for a decade to Azusa Street from all over the world and ships and trains, whatever they had to do. At the turn of the 20th century, there was something like less than 100 known, right at about 1900, there was less than 100 known Pentecostal charismatic believers on the face of the earth. A hundred years later today, that number is 700 million. 700 million and most of that finds its origin in the Azusa Street outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Do you know 700 million? Think about that. You know what that means? That means that right now on the face of the earth, the most spoken language is Mandarin. In China, that's the most spoken language. You know what the second most spoken language is? Tongues. If there's 700 million of us and we're speaking in tongues, that's more than there are English speakers. And what they estimate is by the year 2030, more people will speak in tongues than speak Mandarin or English. It will be the most spoken language on earth. It will be the language of heaven. Do you know that there are more Christians Speaking in tongues on the earth and more Christians alive on the planet worshiping Jesus every Sunday than there are all the saints of previous 2,000 years all the way back to the book of Acts already in heaven, which means this. It means the praises of Jesus are actually louder from earth than they are in heaven. Go back and look at the old fires of healing revivals of tents all across America where people, more people were healed than not healed in all these tent rallies of, of men like A.A. Allen and Oral Roberts, William Branham, where the power of God showed up in miraculous, powerful ways. Go back to the charismatic renewal in the 60s when mainline denominations all got filled with the Holy Spirit. Go back. To 1968, 69, 70, 71 during the Jesus Revolution. We're out in California, a bunch of hippies who were high on drugs and experimenting with free sex and trying to find their identity in the Aquarian age encountered Jesus and were baptized in the Pacific Ocean by the thousands. Time Magazine, June 7, 1971, ran an article with Jesus on the cover and it said the Jesus Revolution. That happened in... The last 50 years. And you could go back and there's so many moves of God. Why is it important to know those? It's because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Which means what you don't know can hurt you. But if we'll go back and we'll find these ancient campfires where God moved. God moved over here And I begin to look at the keys to these revival. What about these men and about these women qualified them for God to pour out his spirit in such a significant way? And We begin to study and give our attention to that. Here's what begins to happen. God begins to look and he begins to find resting places all across the country of people that are hungry for a New move of God. I'm not talking about just a repeat of something he's done before. I'm talking about all of those converging at one time and one place. One time and one place. Smith Wigglesworth, before he died, said he saw a revival at the end, just prior to the return of the Lord, and it was a convergence of all previous revivals combined. And he said, it's it's coming. He said, I can see it. He told Lester Summerall, I won't see it, but the generation to come will. What's God looking for? He's looking for fire carriers of the old fire. He says, Lord, here's my heart. Put the embers in me. Put the ember in me and let it smolder until it's fanned into flame. Put the embers of prayer and worship Put the embers of holiness, put the embers of knowing I'm not overlooked. Our generation is not overlooked. Our generation is not a lost generation. We're a generation that God has marked. I believe right now, leaning over the banister of heaven is every generation prior to us and the leaders of those old fires and they're looking at us and they can see the finish line and they're looking at us going, don't get distracted. Don't get lost. Don't get deceived. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. Come on. This is the time to allow God to deposit his fire, not strange fire like Ahab or Abinadab or Nadab and Abihu. Don't allow the strange fire to be put into your heart. Let the Holy Spirit put his fire into your heart. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, wrote a hymn. He was a fiery revivalist and he wrote this hymn that is called Send the Fire. I just want to speak this over you because I believe even in this room right now, there there are people who your heart, this is what you're crying for. It's like, God, this is what I was born for. And it's lyrics are this. It says, thou Christ of burning, cleansing flame. Send the fire. Thy blood-bought gift today we claim. Send the fire today. Look down and see this waiting host. Give us the promised Holy Ghost. We need another Pentecost. Send the fire today. Tonight I believe that God sent me here to pray a prayer that I'm about to pray. God's looking for those who will say, Lord, I'm gonna walk under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I'll accept the pressing if it means a new anointing. And I want to be a carrier of the old fire. If the heart cry that you have tonight is I wanna be a carrier. God, here I am. I wanna be a carrier of it. So that when you blow, the Holy Spirit wins across a generation. That smoldering ember is going to ignite into a roaring fire and I'm going to be a part of that God's looking for carriers of the fire and if that's you if the desire of your heart is God here I am I'm saying yes to that then tonight I just want you to stand to your feet all over the room Jesus Jesus, 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 Holy Spirit, come. And Lord, I pray tonight, Lord, that you would replace our sight with new lenses. Lord, we need a new prescription to see differently. Lord, give us new eyes, like Elijah prayed. Open, it, open our eyes that we might see that, Lord, we wanna see your armies gathered. Lord, we wanna see heaven gathered around, the cloud of witnesses looking at a single generation in time and saying this is the culmination of everything that i've been working towards this is the maranatha moment this is the moment where the bride and the spirit together say come lord jesus come with power come with wind come with fire and i'm praying tonight right now across this room and even in the overflow lord you know the ones whose heart is towards you is like, God, this is what I was created for. I never even knew it, but this is what I was created for. This is what I was born for. This is what the pain has all been about. It wasn't to destroy me, it was to prepare me for a moment. My story that never made sense, the pieces that never fit into place, all of a sudden they're coming into alignment. I realized the grand weaver was not ignoring me. He was weaving a beautiful tapestry for just a moment. And Lord, I'm praying that tonight in these earthen vessels, you would send a fire, send the fire. There's embers in these hearts already. There's embers in these hearts. Fan them in the flame, Jesus. For some of us take and deposit something of your spirit something of what you're doing this is the hour this is the moment new wine fresh oil old fire Lord we want to be prepared for what you're doing we've heard about your stories we don't want secondhand anointing we want firsthand encounters with you we want costly oil we want pure unadulterated fire we want like Isaiah said we are an unclean generation with unclean lips, but Lord, if you'll set the coals to our mouth, purify us. Here we are, Lord, send us. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and the threshold of the temple was shaken. And I said, woe is me, I am undone. Lord, here we are. Set the coal to our lips. Set the coal to our hearts and ignite us with pure, unadulterated fire and desire for you. Let upper room be a mercy seat expression. Let it be a resting place for the fire of God. Jesus Jesus, we need you. Come on, just invite the Lord right now, wherever you're at, just you and the Father, just say, I want to be a carrier of the fire, Lord. I want to be a carrier of the fire. I'll say no to everything so I can say yes to you. Lord, I need a fresh oil. Bring the pressing, bring the pressing. Fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit. Jesus. Come on, just cry out to Him. Spirit of the living God. Fall afresh. Fall afresh. Oil. Oil. Wine. Fire. Lord, we don't want to be the generation that emerged after Joshua, that neither knew God nor His works. Lord, we want to see it in our day. Lord, we want to see altars full. We want to see hospitals emptied. We want to see streets filled, not in protest, but in praise. We want to see Your Word honored again. We want to see the family altar reestablished, every house an altar. We want to see fathers return to their sons and sons return to their fathers. God, we want to see it in our day. We want to see fire on the altar of God. It's been a drought, Lord, send the rain. It's been a drought, Lord, send the rain. Rebuild the altar of the Lord. God, we want to see the church, not handling you, but hosting you not built around a personality but built around you Jesus we want to see your glory return to your house like we've heard Jesus we need you come come Jesus.